0: Greetings.
1: One must not get one's knickers in a twist. and I first met over a weekend at the House of Friends near Melton Mowbray in Leicestershire. She had a terrible cold and was not feeling or looking her best. Our first conversation was surprisingly stilted and banal. And it ranged from the lack of central heating in British country homes and the ruggedness of the British climate. Mrs. Simpson had heard a song about the Prince some time before. I remember coming back from China. It was after of the Prince's trip to uh, America. And there was a song then saying, I knew a girl who knew a girl who danced with the Prince of Wales. Wallace Warfield Simpson had now been married to Ernest Simpson, her second husband, for three years. They lived in London and that year Mrs. Simpson was presented at court. I was struck by the grace of her carriage and the dignity of her movements. After our first meeting, I didn't see him again until the following spring. Then we met occasionally in the houses of friends. From the first, I looked upon her as the most independent woman I had ever met. And presently, the hope formed that one day I might be able to share my life with her. Just how, I did not know.
0: King Edward VIII's abdication on the 11th of December, 1936, was an event that shocked the nation. In the summer of 1936, Lady Diana Cooper remarked that Wallace is wearing very, very badly. As far as the English upper classes were concerned, Wallace Simpson was a cunning social climber, like Becky Sharp in William Thackeray's novel Vanity Fair. They simply could not understand what King Edward VIII saw in her, a woman considered too lower class to qualify for any kind of royal attention, as well as being a divorcee and an American. But Edward adored her. He had met her in 1931 when he was Prince of Wales, and she was married to her second husband, Ernest Simpson. It was not long before they were in love. My own beloved Wallace, he wrote in 1935. I love you more and more and more. I haven't seen you once today, and I can't take it. I love you." Edward's friend Winston Churchill believed that Wallace was good for him. Although branded with the stigma of a guilty love, he said, no companionship could have appeared more natural, more free from improprieties or grossness. Well read, with a lively sense of humor, Wallace had a warm and sincere heart. She was devoted to her mother and her aunt, and she did not conceal, even in circles where paid work was thought to be vulgar. The fact that her aunt worked for a living, her servants liked her as well. All the maids, said a kitchen maid, spoke well of Mrs. Simpson. By January 1936, when Edward became king, he had decided to marry Wallace. It was said in court circles that Wallace was scheming to be queen, but this was not true. Rather, she wondered if it might be better to be content with the simple way where she would be his mistress rather than his wife. But Edward swept aside her misgivings and persuaded her to start proceedings for divorce. In 1936, he announced his marriage plans to the Prime Minister, Stanley Baldwin. As sovereign, he was free to marry anyone he liked, except a Roman Catholic, under the Royal Marriages Act 1772. But Baldwin said it was impossible. Public opinion would not approve a divorced woman becoming queen. Churchill, Lord Beaverbrook, and Lord Rotherham came up with a solution-a morganatic marriage, by which Wallace would become Edward's wife, but not his queen. It would be known as the Cromwell Plan, because Wallace could still be styled the Duchess of Cornwall. Until the start of December 1936, only the tiny world of society, with a capital S, knew about Edward's love for Wallace, because it had been kept out of the news. But on the 2nd of December, 1936, the story broke. The nation was stunned. The streets were packed and newspapers sold as fast as they were printed. Papers full of Harpy and the King, wrote to Mrs Baldwin in her diary. The establishment led by Baldwin. The Church of England, the Tory press and the royal court had expected the nation to oppose Edward's plan for the marriage. But to their horror, most people wanted to keep him as their king on any terms. He was implausibly popular. He had a star quality that was irresistible. But more than anything, he was appreciated for his concern for the ordinary people, with whom he had served at the front in the years of war and for many visits to the poor many people also liked the idea that wallace like them was not rich and privileged it is character that counts here and in the great beyond not a tittle wrote a woman from south wales to the king the country was divided just as it was split in nineteen ninety seven after the death of diana On one side there was the establishment, on the other there was a mass of ordinary people as well as middle-class liberals and intellectuals, like George Bernard Shaw. The people want their king, insisted a Daily Mail headline. Diners rose in restaurants to propose a toast and in the cinema the national anthem was heard enthusiastic clapping and shouts, we want the king. The newsreel acknowledged that there was a crisis but presented it as a love story not a scandal in the commons mps cheered when churchill stood up demanded that no pressure be put on the king many people suspected that baldwin wanted to get rid of edward that wallace was a godsend because she provided the perfect excuse to bounce him off the throne. But the weekend of the 4th to the 6th of December, there was a prolification of rumours through the nation, planting seeds of doubt. There was widespread speculation that Churchill was going to form a King's Party and bring down the government. It was also rumoured that in the words of Sir Horace Wilson, Baldwin's advisers, Wallace was selfish, self-seeking Hard calculating, ambitious, scheming, dangerous, most dangerous for Edward, a story spread that Wallace was a friend of Rippertron, the German ambassador, and was selling the nation's secrets. These sorts of things were bound to be said, but other incidents of which I heard made one view her with much suspicion, but Wallace had only met Rippentrop only twice. The first occasion was a large luncheon which was also attended by Churchill. Neither she nor Edward were part of any social circle frequented by Hitler's ambassadors. He was a favourite guest of Lord and Lady Londonderry and of the social hostess Miss Ronnie Greville who admired Hitler and fascism. But Mrs greville's royal family were Albert, the Duke of York, and his wife Elizabeth, the future George the Sixth and Queen Elizabeth, not Wallace and Edward. On the 3rd of December, the day after the story broke, Wallace had fled to the south of France to stay with friends. She was a resourceful woman, she had survived an abusive first marriage and had travelled extensively throughout Europe and Asia, but she had sensed a mounting menace in the very atmosphere and felt close to a nervous breakdown. Once away from England she became aware that Edward, who had by now been told by Baldwin that a monogamic marriage was impossible, had decided to abdicate. She tried to stop him. On the 7th December, she issued a statement to the press that she was willing to renounce the King Baldwin was unnerved. Only time I was frightened, I thought the King might change his mind. He quickly sent a telegram to the Domanian Prime Minister stating that he had every reason for doubting Bona of Mrs. Simpson's statement. Edward stood firm in his decision to go. On the 10th of December, knowing Baldwin was going to make an announcement in the House of Commons, Edward sent him a note asking him to tell the House of Mrs. Simpson's efforts to prevent him from giving up the throne. Horace Wilson pinned a note of his own to the one Edward had sent. I asked the PM whether he had any intention of mentoring Mrs. Simpson. If he had, it was quite willing to draft an appropriate passage. The PM said he would make no reference. On the 11th of December, Edward gave his speech to the nation, which Winston Churchill had helped him write. It had become impossible for him, he said, to discharge my duties as king as I would wish to do without the help and support of the woman I love. Wallace listened in France, lying on a sofa with her eyes closed. They were finally married on the 3rd of June 1937 in France. But the new king, George VI, forbade any of Edward's brothers or his sister from attending the wedding. Then he sent the word that the title of H.R.H., Her Royal Highness, would not be extended to Wallace; She would simply be known as the Duchess of Windsor. It was a wounding blow to Edward. I hope you will never regret this sacrifice, Wallace wrote to Edward, and your brother will prove the world that we still have a position and that you will be given some jobs to do. But this was not to be. The couple had made repeated requests for useful employment but were turned down. It was feared in court circles that, as Horace Wilson told Neville Chamberlain in December 1936, Mrs. Simpson intended not only to come back here to set up a court of her own and, there can be little doubt, do her best to make things uncomfortable for the new occupants of the throne. It was not assumed that she had abandoned hope of becoming Queen of England. I think you know, wrote George VI in December 1938 to Chamberlain, now Prime Minister, that neither the Queen, Elizabeth, later the Queen Mother, nor Queen Mary have any desire to meet the Duchess of Windsor. Churchill observed sadly of the Duchess of Windsor. No one has been more victimised by gossip and scandal. The ugly rumours lingered on even beyond Wallace's death in 1986. In a sense, they became worse because the establishment's perception of Wallace in 1936 prevailed, eclipsing the sympathetic view of the ordinary people at the time. It is maintained that a China dossier exists listing sexual tricks learnt by Wallace in Shanghai, which she had used to ensnare the king but nothing has been found in any archives. The allegations that she was a Nazi agent is still current and even though there was no reliable evidence in either the British or German National Archives. In 2005, Prince Charles married Camilla Parker Bowles, a divorcee, on a very monogamous basis. Denied to Edward, Camilla became the Duchess of Cornwall and was styled HRH. If this was the solution that could be achieved for Charles and Camilla, then why had it not been possible for Edward and Wallace?
1: This is Windsor Castle, His Royal Highness Prince Edward. At, at long last, I am able to say a few words of my own. I have never wanted to withhold anything but until now it has not been constitutionally possible for me to speak. A few hours ago I discharged my last duty as king and emperor and now that I have been succeeded by my brother, the Duke of York. My first words must be to declare my allegiance to him. This I do with all my heart. You all know the reasons which have have impelled me to renounce the throne. But I want you to understand that in making up my mind I did not forget the country or the empire which as Prince of Wales and lately as King I have for 25 years tried to serve but you must believe me when I tell you that I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge my duties as king as I would wish to do without the help and support of the woman I love. And I want you to know that the decision I have made has been mine and mine alone. This was a thing I had to judge entirely for myself. The other person most nearly concerned has tried up to the last to persuade me to take a different course. I have made this the most serious decision of my life only upon the single thought of what would in the end be best for all. This decision has been made less difficult to me by the sure knowledge that my brother with his long training in the public affairs of this country and with his fine qualities will be able to take my place forthwith without interruption or injury to the life and progress of the Empire and he has won matchless blessing, enjoyed by so many of you and not bestowed on me a happy home with his wife and children. During these hard days, I have been comforted by Her Majesty, my mother, and by, her, by my family. The Ministers of the Crown, and in particular Mr Baldwin, the Prime Minister, have always treated me with full consideration. There has never been any constitutional difference between me and them and between me and Parliament. Bred in the constitutional tradition by my father, I should never have allowed any such issue to arise. Ever since I was Prince of Wales and later on when I occupied the throne, I have been treated with the greatest kindness by all classes of the people, wherever I have lived or journeyed throughout the Empire. For that, I am very grateful. I now quit altogether public affairs, and I lay down my burden. It may be some time before I return to my native land, but I shall always follow the fortunes of the British race and empire with profound interest. And if at any time in the future I can be found of service to His Majesty in a private station, I shall not fail. And now we all have a new king. I wish him and you, his people, happiness and prosperity with all my heart. God bless you all God save the king.